Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Mile Heart Podcast. This is episode 213, and today I'll be diving into the very brutal case of the Rogers family. Um, this is a vacation nightmare, the worst kind. And just fair warning, this one is definitely disturbing, um, but it's in a very important case, uh, definitely one that we want to to remember um, just what these poor women went through. But before we get into the episode, uh, as you can see, Kendall is not here. And if you've watched any of the previous episodes, you know that Kendall is on maternity leave. And at the time that this episode goes up, I believe we'll probably be in the hospital having uh, having our baby girl. So pretty exciting. And then after this episode goes up, this will be the last one for a couple weeks because I'm going to go on paternity leave and enjoy my new baby girl. And hopefully I'll be back by the end of August, but we, we shall see. I may end up taking a little bit more time, but the plan is to come back at the end of August with another episode. But yeah, Kendall is not here. So it'll just be me and Janelle again. Janelle's over there. What's up, Janelle? What up? Wish I could sit up there with you. I know. But I know. the it's equipment does not here. allow. <laughs> so it instead, does not, it doesn't run itself, unfortunately. No. And it's just you and a giant table. <laughs> I know. I know. I feel so lonely up here at this big table. But before we get into today's episode, I just want to remind everyone that our merch collection for Mile Higher is still available at milehiremerch.com. Many of you have supported us and went and bought items, and we really, really appreciate it. We're still plowing through orders each day, getting those shipped out to you guys as fast as possible. It's been a huge success to, to do all this ourselves, And so bear with us, you know, we're doing the best we can to get everything to you in a timely manner and, you know, deal with all the customer service involved with that. But yeah, that's a great way to support the show and just our, our business as a whole is merch. Um, but a free way to support the show is just by making sure you're subscribed on YouTube Make sure you're following us on Spotify and subscribed on Apple Podcasts. If you do those three things, that really does help out the podcast as a whole. So we'd really appreciate it if you went and just double checked right now if you are subscribed and following us on all those platforms. But this episode of the podcast is brought to you by HelloFreshStamps.com, Pretty Litter, and Raycon. So let's go ahead and just dive right into this case. And we're going to start by giving you a little bit of background on the victim's and just the Rogers family as a whole. So today we're gonna to be looking at the story of the Rogers family who are from Ohio, but the story in this case focuses primarily on three women, Joe, Michelle, and Christy. So Joan May Etzler was born on November 12th, 1952 in Van Wert, Ohio, and she usually went by Joe for short. Van Wert is a small farming city on the Ohio-Indiana border. So Joe, she grew up on the farm and she had a pretty normal, happy childhood. She grew up to be a beautiful woman with a confident and outgoing personality, and Joe always loved to laugh and dance country music, which was her favorite. And in high school, Joe started dating a classmate named Hal Rogers. They actually got engaged a few months after they graduated from high school, and she was actually pregnant with her first daughter when she got married. Joe's mother was pretty ashamed when she found out that Joe was pregnant out of wedlock, and so much so that she didn't let her wear a wedding dress or invite friends to the reception, which is just cruel. But Joe always knew how to make the best of everything. She was independent, loving, tough, and she could make a mean potato soup. Oh, I like potato I soup. I love potato soup, dude. Slops. It does. It's so filling, too. Mm -hmm. And Joe's optimism really just carried her through all of life's challenges. On February 22nd, 1972, Joe gave birth to their daughter, Michelle Lee. And then her and Hal actually had another daughter named Christy Eugenia on June 1st, 1989. 
The family lived on a 300-acre dairy farm in Wilshire, Ohio, which is right near the city of Van Wert. As you can imagine, with a 300-acre dairy farm, the amount of work that the family had to put in to the farm was truly impressive. The cows needed to be milked at 5.30 a.m. and 3 p.m. sharp every day. It didn't matter if it was blizzarding that morning or what the weather held, and it didn't matter if they ended up covered in manure. The work had to get done no matter what. And the work, as you can imagine, definitely wasn't glamorous. There were no days off and no sleeping in when it was your turn to milk the cows. Getting the work done and done on time was truly a family effort. Both daughters helped out on the farm while also juggling school and extracurricular activities. Michelle often spent her mornings in the milk parlor before she boarded the bus and headed off for a long day at school. Michelle was a quiet but charming 17-year-old girl. She loved to stack her fingers with rings and listen to Madonna and Guns N' Roses. Her friends said that Michelle was a typical farm girl and a bit of a tomboy, but sometimes she'd actually sleep in the barn with the cows. That's so cute. That is. Dairy cows are so cute. I know. Michelle still made sure to look stylish, though. She had good eyesight, but she wore pink-rimmed glasses because she thought they looked fashionable, and her room was decorated with unicorn photos, and she liked to chew bright pink bubblegum. From the outside, Michelle is a typical teenager, just like her sister Christy. Whereas Christy, she was a bubbly 14-year-old and her father's favorite. She was definitely a daddy's girl. And sometimes Christy would practice her cheerleading routines for the cows, and then I always put a smile on her father's face. She thought of the cows as her pets, and the girls even gave them names like Rosie and Betty. Christy also played catcher in softball. Her can-do attitude really showed through on the baseball diamond. It was easy for people to be taken with her confident and carefree personality. Every day, Christy teased, gelled, and sprayed her bangs up into a four-inch mall hairstyle. She also wore three colorful woven friendship bracelets on her wrist. While Michelle was more reserved, Christy was a talkative good girl of the family. The challenging day-to-day life on the farm didn't seem to affect her too much. But that didn't mean that the family never struggled behind the scenes. It's hard to really imagine how tiring farm work can be unless you've actually lived through it and done the farming life yourself. Out of everyone in the family, Joe was especially exhausted. Not only did she work on the farm, but she worked midnight shifts at Peyton Northern, a local food warehouse. Joe worked as a forklift operator there. The reason why she got this second job was so that she could qualify her family for health insurance and provide a second source of income. Her coworkers warned her that she was working way too hard sometimes, and she'd fall asleep in the break room or even behind the wheel of the forklift. Joe never had much time to herself. Every morning, she'd drive back from her midnight shift to help out with the daily farm chores, get the kids ready for school, and then head into town with Hal for breakfast. Joe tried to cram in a few hours of sleep while the girls were away, but then it was right back to the parlor for the cow's afternoon milking. She'd work some more, cook dinner, take a little nap, and then head to her midnight shift at the warehouse. It was an exhausting day-to-day lifestyle, and in 1988, problems at home made that routine incredibly difficult. Hal actually owned the farm with his brother, John. John had always been a weird guy, and other local residents thought he had something a bit off about him. John lived in a trailer on the property and helped his family with the daily chores, and his former girlfriend also lived in the trailer. And when they broke up, she continued to live there. But in May of 1988, something truly horrific happened. John's girlfriend came home one night and was threatened by a man in a mask. The man held a knife up to her neck and sexually assaulted her. The attacker actually recorded the assault on a video camera. So John's ex-girlfriend called the police and told them that she thought the masked intruder was actually John himself. So the police got a warrant and searched the trailer for evidence. And that's when they found the proof they needed. 
the videotape of John sexually assaulting his now ex-girlfriend. And just when things couldn't get any more disturbing for the Rogers, it did. The videotape wasn't the only thing police found. After John was arrested, they called Joe and Hal into the station and they broke the horrible news to them. They had also discovered explicit photographs of their daughter, Michelle. For the past two years, Michelle's uncle had been sexually abusing her and taking photos and videos of the assaults. She was only 14 when the abuse started. The police talked to Michelle and she confirmed that John had been abusing her and threatening to kill her if she told anybody. And he avoided getting caught by Hal and Joe by waiting for them to leave the farm before he started abusing Michelle. This discovery was earth-shattering for Hal and Joe. They were completely destroyed by the fact that their daughter was being abused right under their noses, and tragically their nightmare only got worse from there. John claimed that he was somehow being framed for the crimes, and insanely enough, John's mother actually believed John. Even though there was so much evidence proving that John was guilty, and she told people that Michelle was a liar. I can't even imagine dealing with that. I mean, you find out this news and then your own mother is siding with your brother who is clearly a monster. Especially at 14 years old. Oh, like, God. you have no power, you know, and you're so impressionable. It's just so upsetting. And isn't the statistic something like most sexual assaults oh, or yeah. mol molestation are done by your own family members? Like people that you know, like people that. close people to you, you know, right? Very, not, I don't want to say very rarely, but more rarely is it by complete strangers than someone that you either an acquaintance, a friend, a family member is, I think, probably the most common um, statistic. That's terrifying That's to disgusting. think about because it's like. You, you think that your own, especially your own siblings or your own family members would be the people that you could trust to take care and keep your yeah. children safe. And then oftentimes they're the, the abusers in this case. I mean, it scares me, especially becoming a father. I mean, not that I think that anybody in my family would ever do something like that. But it's just, it's just these fears that you start realizing, mm -hmm. these real life fears that are out there. And to go off, you know, you just said, not that I think anyone in my family would do this. I think a lot of people have those thoughts. Right. Not saying that that's going to happen, of course, but I think a lot of people are in that mindset of when they figure out, it's like, well, what, John? Like, I never thought he would do that or, you know, whoever it is. It, they're my family member. And, yeah, it's really sad. So Hal was obviously devastated by this shocking betrayal. Michelle's own grandmother was defending the monster that abused her, and Hal immediately made the decision to cut his mother out of his life. All of these events really sent Hal into a deep depression, and Joe wasn't really able to pull him out of it. Joe tried to get him to open up, but he didn't know how to talk about the trauma. And Michelle didn't want to talk to anyone about what had happened either. She wished that the whole thing would just go away and she could be done with it. She didn't want to go to therapy and she definitely didn't want to testify at trial. The thought of reliving those awful traumas in a courtroom was understandably an unbearable thought to Michelle. She said that if it came down to it, she'd leave town so she wouldn't have to speak at the trial. John ultimately was sentenced to 7 to 25 years for the rape of his ex-girlfriend, and the charges related to John assaulting Michelle were dropped since Michelle declined to testify. That's so horrible, too, that like unless Michelle testified, yeah. he, he received no punishment for all that abuse. Especially in the fact that, you know, someone in her own family doesn't believe her. I think that even pushes her more so to not want to share to, you know, a random trial. And having to relive that abuse in general is just horrible. So as the months went on, Michelle started to reclaim her life. 
She was a decent student and a member of two school clubs, 4-H and Future Farmers of America. Michelle was a beautiful girl with a kind smile, but you could sense that there was a kind of sadness hidden behind her eyes. She'd clearly been through a lot. She was shy, but at the same time, she had a bit of a wild streak in her. She flirted with boys and occasionally smoked and drank wine coolers. People at school gossiped about Michelle, though, and she tried to brush it off, as she just wanted to be a normal teenager. Her friends remember that she was torn about her future. Sometimes she told them that she wanted to go to college and become a veterinarian. Michelle swore that she'd never spend the rest of her life on a farm, but sometimes she said that all she wanted was to get married and raise a family on a farm of her own. Eventually, Michelle started dating a classmate named Jeff. She proudly wore his class ring as a symbol that they were a couple, and the two of them had a genuine friendship, and Michelle had grown pretty close to him. Jeff saw his girlfriend for the last time, though, on May 25, 1989. Michelle, Joe, and Christy were heading off to Florida the next day for a week-long vacation. It was a short trip, but Michelle was really going to miss Jeff. Tears welled up in her eyes when he kissed her goodbye. Life on the farm is difficult work, and it's not every day that you're able to get a break or let alone take a vacation because there's crops that need to be harvested and cows to feed. But the Rogers really needed a vacation, and it was time to get out of rural Ohio for a little bit. Hal Rogers wouldn't be joining them on the trip as the rain cycle was off that year and he needed to make sure that the crops were planted at the right time. And there was obviously just too much work at the farm for him to get away as well for a few days. But he really wanted his wife and daughters to go on the trip. With all the hard work they put into the farm, they really deserved a break. And it would be their first family vacation and the first time that they'd ever left Ohio. They debated on whether going to Gettysburg or Gatlinburg in Virginia, but they wanted to pick somewhere adventurous for a change. So the trio picked Florida. Florida would be the perfect escape. Like so many other American families, they dreamed of leaving behind their tiny Midwestern town for warm weather, sandy beaches, and tropical sunsets, even if it would only be for a week. The trip had been in the works for weeks, and Joe and the girls prepared for the vacation thoroughly. They made sure to hit the tanning salon plenty of times, and they researched the best attractions to make stops at. On May 26, 1989, the three of them packed up their blue 86 Oldsmobile Calais and kissed Hal goodbye. It was going to be a long 14-hour drive from Ohio to Florida. But Joe liked to drive fast. They left the house later than planned, and she was anxious to get to Florida and start their vacation. It was a straight shot down Interstate 75 to Florida, and they just have to stop in Georgia for the night. The Rogers girls arrived in Jacksonville, Florida on the 30th, and they spent the night at a motel and headed for the Jacksonville Zoo that morning. After they snapped pictures with the giraffes and the monkeys, they were off to Silver Springs near Ocala. Silver Springs is known for its beautiful clear spring waters and peaceful manatees, and the Rogers stopped for a glass-bottom boat tour. The trio had a busy day planned on the 31st as they planned to visit SeaWorld, Epcot, and MGM Studios. That's a lot to do in one day. Visit all three of those places? But then on June 1st, they drove to Tampa, Florida. They wanted to see the Busch Gardens Amusement Park and then relax at one of Tampa's white sand beaches. At around 12.30 p.m., the three girls checked into the Days Inn at Rocky Point near the Tampa airport. The room overlooked the water, and seven minutes later, Michelle called her boyfriend Jeff to wish him a happy birthday as she had sent him flowers at work that day. Their conversation lasted about 10 minutes, and Michelle told Jeff that they were having fun. The girls wanted to go to the beach, but Joe didn't let them go near the deep water. At 12.57, someone called Bush Garden's information line. It's not known what the trio did for the rest of the afternoon, but based on their disposable camera photos, they didn't end up going to Bush Gardens. That evening, the Rogers family ate dinner at the motel's restaurant, 
and a businessman from Houston remembered seeing the girls who looked very happy at the time. They laughed with each other as they ate, and when the three got up, Michelle said hi to the man as they passed by. The last photo that the girls took was at the day's end, and it was a photo of the sunset from their balcony. Afterwards, they jumped into their car and headed for that sunset, never to be seen alive again. Before we get into the events that take place next, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. So now, let's fast forward a couple days to June 4th. Hal Rogers was pacing in the kitchen. He was expecting his wife and daughters to be back any minute now, as Joe had promised to be home by that day. He checked the driveway for their car over and over again, just waiting for them to pull up and tell them all about their adventures in Florida. Weirdly, Hal hadn't heard from his family in several days, and they were supposed to be back by now, as Joe had work on Monday and Michelle was supposed to start summer school. He figured that they were just taking their time getting back, but the anxiety was starting to gnaw away at him. Day turned to night and there was no sign of the girls. He called family and friends, but none of them had heard from the trio. Meanwhile, on the 4th, a sailboat named Amber Waves was returning to Tampa from a trip to Key West. As it crossed under the Sunshine Skyway Bridge in the lower Tampa Bay, some passengers noticed something strange in the water. In the water was a woman's body, and she floated face down, and she was naked from the waist down. Her arms, feet, and neck were bound with yellow rope. The Amber Waves quickly radioed the Coast Guard, who immediately sent a rescue boat to the body. It was hard to get the body on the boat, as it had been tied to something heavy that they couldn't lift from the water. The crew placed the body into a body bag and headed for the shore, but before they could get there, there was another call. Another sailboat spotted a second female body floating in the bay. The crew was able to locate the second body just north of the first one. It was also bound, weighed down, and partially undressed. They were cutting the ropes when another call came in. Only a few hundred yards away, someone had spotted a third female body. Police investigators were waiting at the dock when the Coast Guard returned, and they photographed and examined the bodies, which were already bloated and decomposing. Someone had tied concrete blocks around each woman's neck, and all their mouths had been duct-taped. One of the girls had managed to free her left hand from the rope before she died, and it appeared that all three had been sexually assaulted, given that they were undressed from the waist down. None of the women had any identification on them, and police wouldn't be able to know how they died until they performed autopsies. Back at home, Hal still hadn't heard anything on his family, as there was no sign of Joe, Christie, and Michelle. So he called the police and reported them missing. And by June 7th, Hal couldn't contain his anxiety any longer. He then went to the bank and withdrew $7,000 to start his own investigation. He didn't care if he had to charter a private plane to search for them by air. All Hal wanted to do was find his wife and two daughters. By June 8th, the housekeeper at the Days Inn in Rocky Point was starting to get concerned about room 251. She knew that three women had checked in there about a week ago, but every day since then their room hadn't changed. The beds weren't slept in and all their belongings stayed in the same spot. And the housekeeper told her manager, and that's when the manager called the police. Investigators dusted the room for fingerprints and compared them to the three bodies found in the Tampa Bay. And that's when they made the grim discovery that those bodies belonged to Joe, Michelle, and Christy Rogers. Police called the Van Wert County Sheriff's Office in Ohio and the sheriff knocked on Hal's door that day and gave him the absolutely horrifying news. That same day, the police discovered the family's Oldsmobile. It was parked on a boat ramp on the Courtney Campbell Causeway. The Courtney Campbell Causeway is a highway that connects Tampa to the city of Clearwater. It has pull-offs along the road where people can hang out on the small strips of beach and fish. 
or launch a boat. Now the investigators had to figure out why the car had been parked there. They wondered if they had made plans to meet someone at the boat ramp, and it looked like the trio didn't plan on being gone for very long. The doors were locked and the front seat was pushed forward, which showed someone had climbed out of the back seat. Inside the vehicle, there were some scattered Uno cards, a puzzle book, and a brochure for Clearwater Beach. There was also a small toy cow stuck to the inside of the rear window. It was supposed to remind the family of their home back in Ohio. And on the driver's seat, the police found some directions Joe wrote on a sheet of days in stationery. It was the route from the motel to the boat ramp on the causeway. There was also another note, blue W slash WHT. The police thought that whoever lured the Rogers out must have had a blue and white boat based on that note. To investigate these murders, the Tampa and St. Petersburg Police Departments, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, as well as the Florida Marine Patrol, created a task force of over 24 investigators. It was hard for the team to find clues, as the bodies were found in the water, meaning there was no murder scene that would have given them information on the killer. The Oldsmobile was clean, and there were no unusual fingerprints in the motel room. The autopsies also couldn't be as conclusive as investigators hoped. Because the bodies were in the water for multiple days, the coroner couldn't get physical evidence of a sexual assault. But the investigators believed that whoever killed the women bound and gagged them, assaulted them, and dropped each of them in the water. The women had water in their lungs, which showed that they were thrown in the water alive and drowned. And it looked like this was the work of a killer with experience. There was one clue, though, that the investigators found in the car. On the other side of a map of Tampa Bay, there were written directions that described how to get back to the Days Inn, but unlike the first note, these directions were not written in Joe's handwriting. It was at this point that police knew they had to try and find whoever wrote this note. First, the police tracked down a man who had offered a couple a boat ride on the night the women disappeared. They found the man and discovered that he had a blue and white boat, as well as a criminal record. The man told the police that he had been out on his boat that night with some friends, but when he took the detectives aside, he told them that he'd actually been out on the boat with his mistress. The investigators checked out his alibi and cleared the man of any suspicion. Investigators looked into whether or not John Rogers, Hal's brother, could have organized the murders from jail. There were some similarities in the crimes as the trio had been bound, gagged, and assaulted, which matched the details of the sexual assaults John committed. But they determined that there was no way John could have had a hand in these murders. As he was in jail and obviously couldn't have committed them himself, and there was nothing that indicated that he hired someone to commit the murders for him. As the police continued their investigations, funerals for the Rogers women were held in Ohio. Nobody could understand why Joe, Michelle, and Christy had been senselessly murdered. People thought Hal's behavior at the funeral, though, was strange. So many people were sobbing at the service, clearly overwhelmed with emotion, but Hal didn't break down at all. In reality, though, Hal was just dealing with that unimaginable grief in the only way he knew how to. But that didn't stop rumors from spreading that he might have been involved. The police started to actually look into Hal Rogers and they discovered something strange. Hal had actually paid off John's $10,000 bail even after he'd been accused of sexually assaulting Michelle. And Hal's reasoning for this was pretty weird. He told police that he had given John his word to post his bail before the news about Michelle came to light. Hal said that he agreed to still pay John's bail if he signed over his part of the farm and never saw the family again. The police also asked Hal about the $7,000 he'd withdrawn from the bank after the girl's disappearance, and he explained that he withdrew the money while he was forming his desperate plan to find his family, but by the time he wanted to get started, their bodies had already been found. Hal showed them that all the money was still there, 
He had $1,000 in his pocket and $6,000 in his glove box. So police moved their search for a suspect back to Florida. It was clear that nobody who knew the Rogers in Ohio was responsible for these brutal killings. This was a completely Florida-based crime. The killer must have been someone who met the trio randomly. They might have been lost and the killer may have given them directions to get back to the motel. He likely befriended them and invited them on a sunset cruise. The suspect then wrote directions to the boat ramp on the causeway so they'd make it there. Tips started to dry up as time went on though and the big coalition of agencies ended and the case was left solely to the St. Petersburg Police Department. The number of investigators working the case slowly shrunk from two dozen to just two. In October, the lead detective on the case received an interesting clue. It was a monthly bulletin from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement that contained a suspicious item. It was a report of a rape that occurred on May 15th, about two weeks before the Rogers family was murdered. The victim was a 24-year-old Canadian woman who had been vacationing in the area with a friend. The two were chatted up by a polite man at a 7-Eleven who offered to take them out on his boat. The next day, one of the women decided not to go out on the man's boat, so she stayed behind. But the other woman boarded the suspect's light blue and white boat, and she and the man had a pretty pleasant, unremarkable boat ride. He then brought her back to shore and offered to take the two women out that night for a sunset cruise. The woman agreed, and the man who said his name was Dave Posner told her to bring a camera. That night, the woman returned alone, as her friend didn't want to go on the boat trip either. Dave seemed irritated at first, but the two boarded the boat, and Dave drove it off into the waterway. The ride was normal at first. Dave and the woman made polite conversation as the sun set near Madeira Beach. But when it started to get dark, the man's attitude changed, and he started coming on to the woman. She rejected him and told him that she didn't want to have sex with him, but then Dave forced himself on the woman, who screamed for help. But because they are out in the middle of the water, nobody was nearby to hear her. After the assault, the man instructed her to get dressed. He threw the film from her camera into the water and apologized to the woman. He said that he knew she was going to report the assault, but he asked her to wait a little. He said his mother was sick and he wanted to tell her before the cops showed up. The man then threw up over the side of the boat and the woman thought he was nervous that her friend would identify him to the police. The fact that her friend was waiting patiently by the dock for her to return may have saved that woman's life from being murdered. She described the suspect as a white male in his mid-thirties with blonde hair. He looked to be about 5'10 and weighed about 180 pounds. He claimed to live in the nearby town of Bradenton and worked for an aluminum company. The suspect drove a dark-colored four-wheel drive car that looked like a Jeep Cherokee or Ford Bronco. The police noted the similarities between the attack and the Rogers murders. In both cases, the suspect preyed on female tourists who weren't familiar with the area. He also asked both of them to take a boat ride, threatened the victims with duct tape, and removed the lower half of their clothing. The police asked the Canadian woman to help them drop a composite sketch, and this sketch was released to the public. And at that point, the tips started flooding in, but unfortunately, none of them panned out. However, one woman in Tampa thought she might have recognized the man in the photo. She'd even cut out the sketch from her newspaper and tacked it up on her fridge. And that woman's name was Joanne Steffi. To her, it looked like her neighbor who lived two houses down from her on Dalton Avenue. Her neighbor was a man who looked to be in his 40s and he had a wife and a young daughter and he worked as an aluminum contractor. Joanne had always gotten a weird vibe from this neighbor. Even before she read about the Madeira Beach rape case, he was talkative and friendly, but he almost seemed like he was acting too helpful. His physical appearance matched the composite sketch. So did his car, too. A dark blue Jeep Cherokee. 
Joanne was sure that her neighbor was the suspect, and as the weeks went on, she stared at the photo and became more and more sure of that fact. So one day, Joanne decided to show the sketch to her friend. She said she was debating whether or not to go to the police. Her friend told her that the sketch could have been anyone, and that that was a big accusation to make that could ruin an innocent person's life. That warning stopped Joanne from going to the cops with her theory, but that uneasy feeling never left her for a very long time. One night after she got another good look at her neighbor, she decided to do something about it. Joanne was taking an accounting class at Tampa College, and one of her classmates was a sheriff's deputy who came into class in uniform pretty often. And one day she stopped the deputy outside of class and told him that she thought her neighbor matched the composite sketch of a Madeira Beach rapist. Joanne told the deputy, though, that she didn't want to get involved with the case. She just thought it was important to pass along that info, and the deputy nodded. After this, weeks passed by, and Joanne didn't hear anything about an arrest. Her neighbor and his family moved out of their house without telling anyone where they were headed, and Joanne figured that the police must have investigated him and found nothing, and that made her feel better. But sadly, Joanne's tip actually never made it to investigators. The deputy didn't report it, or it was somehow lost or disregarded by a superior, but the investigators were still trying their best to figure out who killed the Rogers. By now it was 1991, and the investigators shared their case files with the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, and they put together a profile of the killer. The FBI profilers reported that the suspect was likely a serial killer. He was probably affluent, respected, and had above-average intelligence and social skills. He was a sick man who enjoyed watching other people suffer. The suspect had probably killed before, since he'd murdered three victims in one boat outing. He'd probably gotten the confidence to take on multiple victims after getting away with a first murder. That meant the Rogers murders probably made him bolder. He'd learn from his mistakes and kill again, since he was confident he wouldn't get caught. He'd keep killing people until he was arrested. The suspect was also probably a local resident with his own boat. He clearly knew the area very well and lived nearby, but he'd still be hard to find as a killer of this nature easily blends in with their surroundings. Murderer wouldn't be the first thing people thought when they looked at him, and the killer would look like an everyday responsible citizen, so the police needed to get the word out in order to track him down. They really needed to get the public on their side, and that meant that the public couldn't look at Hal as a suspect. The lead detective gave Hal a polygraph which he passed and called a press conference, and he told the press that Hal was an innocent victim, but the real killer was still on the loose lurking around somewhere in the Tampa Bay area. And the message to the killer was clear. The police were going to find him. So the investigation continued into the spring of 1992. It had now been almost three years since Joe, Michelle, and Christy were murdered. But the lead investigator, Glenn Moore, never stopped searching for answers. When he was off duty, he'd take his wife down to the Courtney Camel Causeway and try to retrace the trio's last movements. He was determined to bring this monster to justice. It was his job, after all. Glenn felt like he had a duty to God and the public to get that man behind bars. But some people at the St. Petersburg Police Department didn't feel that same way. They figured the case was unsolvable, and the only way they could get an arrest would be if the killer himself confessed. Other officers complained that Glenn and his team were using too much of the department's resources. They even accused the team of using the case for fame and publicity, since TV producers were calling up the station. Glenn didn't want anything to do with that, though. He only wanted this brutal killer taken off the streets. Other officers still didn't believe him. They asked Glenn, how much longer are you going to milk this one? Resentment and jealousy started to spread throughout the department, 
After all, there were other murder cases that needed resources and needed solving, but the team still pushed on. They still needed the media to get the public interested in the case again, so they took a look at the case files and tried to decide what bit of information to release. And that's when investigators stopped on the handwritten directions again. They pieced together the family's final movements and realized that whoever wrote those directions to the boat ramp probably killed them too. The trio probably made an accidental turn off the interstate and ended up stopping in a nearby McDonald's to turn around. The police believe that they might have gotten lost after exiting onto the Dale Mabry Highway, since the right lane on I-275 changes into an exit lane very quickly. The killer must have spotted the lost women, giving them directions and offered them a ride on his boat later that day, and the police knew the handwriting would take them back to their suspect. So they held a press conference and encouraged the media to publish the handwritten directions far and wide, and sure enough, local papers printed the directions and asked the public to help identify the Rogers family murderer. And on May 14, 1992, Joanne Steffi was reading her daily newspaper when she saw something that caught her eye. It was the handwritten directions. It had been over two years since she had told the deputy about her suspicious neighbor, and those uneasy feelings rushed back to her. Joanne contacted the woman next door, Mazelle Smith, and asked if their former neighbor did any contracting work on her house. Mazelle said that he had, and she'd even kept a copy of the contract form he had wrote out. All she had to do was find it. While Mazelle dug through her files, Joanne called the task force, and she told them about her old neighbor who matched the sketch. She mentioned his blue and white boat and his dark blue car. Joanne told Eileen, a member of the task force, that his name was Oba Chandler. Mazelle actually found the contract that afternoon, and when the two compared the contract with the handwritten directions, a chill went down their spines. The handwriting was a direct match. Oba Chandler must have killed the Rogers family. The women immediately called Eileen back and faxed over a copy of the contract. Eileen placed the fax contract in a large stack of handwriting samples that still needed to be examined. Ever since the directions were published in the local papers, the task force was absolutely swamped with tips. It was going to take forever to get all the leads checked out. But the investigators still tried to drum up more leads. That June, they decided to put up billboards around the Tampa Bay area, and the billboards had pictures of Joe, Michelle, and Christy, and big red letters that read, who killed the Rogers family. When the county commissioner saw the billboard, she got an idea. She called the team and told them to put the handwritten directions on the billboards as well. And on July 30th, the team did just that. They hoped that the new billboards would help keep the case alive. Meanwhile, Joanne and Mazelle were getting really frustrated. They'd been calling the task force for weeks, asking if they'd taken a look at the contract that they faxed over. And each time, the team politely asked them to be patient while they processed each of the countless tips that they had been receiving. Even Mazelle's daughter started to call Eileen, and at one point she faxed in another copy of the sample. She also attached a letter pleading for them to check out the writing. Finally, Eileen went to Glenn directly and told him about the tip. Glenn assigned another member of the team to go to Mazelle's house and get the original contract. The contract and the directions had an eerily similar handwriting. The team realized that they had a new suspect and things moved quickly once they learned about Oba Chandler. So let's go ahead and dive into Oba Chandler as he becomes the prime suspect in this case. But before we do, we're gonna take our last break. and We'll be right back. So Oba Chandler was a 45-year-old man who lived with his family near Daytona Beach. Not only did he own a dark blue Jeep Cherokee, but he also owned a light blue and white boat. His old house on Dalton Avenue was actually right next to the McDonald's off of Dale Mabry Highway. 
the spot where detectives thought the trio got lost, and the house was only two miles from the boat ramp on the causeway, but the most damning piece of evidence so far was the old composite sketch. When the team compared Oba's picture to the sketch, they were convinced that they had finally found their killer. Oba also had a lengthy rap sheet that began when he was a child. He was a career criminal who had been arrested many times by the time the team set their sights on him. He used different fake names and job titles throughout his long criminal career. As a con man, Oba had been arrested for armed robbery, burglary, and counterfeiting. He'd even once been charged with kidnapping. And at one point, Oba joined the Marines, but he deserted shortly afterwards. Oba was born and raised in Ohio. Investigators think that he might have seen the Rogers Ohio license plates on their car and earned their trust by talking about home. Oba had already been arrested 20 times before he had turned 18 years old. He'd stolen his first car at the age of 14, and people often said that it seemed like he genuinely enjoyed scaring and hurting people. Oba also had a disturbing history of violence against women. Once he was arrested after he was caught peeping through a woman's window while masturbating, he'd fathered eight kids with seven different women, and he'd been married many times. In 1988, he had married a woman named Deborah 10 days after she divorced her previous husband, and the two had a daughter named Whitney and moved to their house on Dalton Avenue. State records show that Oba owned a 21-foot blue and white Bayliner boat in 1989 at the time of both the Madeira Beach rape and the Rogers slayings. He sold the boat three months after the murders. Those records also prove that he owned the Jeep at the same time of the rape case. After news came out that the Rogers case would be featured on the show Unsolved Mysteries, Oba and the family packed up and left their house without warning. It went into foreclosure after he stopped making payments on it. The family then moved to Port Orange, a town near Daytona Beach, and put their new lease in their three-year-old daughter's name. There was a lot of pretty incriminating circumstantial evidence that the police had against Oba. It became pretty clear that this was their guy. But there still wasn't enough evidence to arrest Oba. The team needed more. They eventually got approval to do surveillance on Oba in Daytona Beach. A device they placed on the phone lines made a record of each incoming outgoing call from his new house. Meanwhile, experts at the FBI matched the direction sample to the contract and confirmed that Oba had written them. They also matched his fingerprints with prints found on the Clearwater Beach brochure. Detectives traveled to Toronto to interview the victim in the Madeira Beach rape case. Both she and her friend looked at a photo lineup and identified Oba as the perpetrator. Now they could get a warrant to have Oba arrested for the sexual assault. He'd be off the street while prosecutors built up more evidence in the Rogers murder case. Over 40 agents from multiple agencies began the task of surveilling Oba's house. They set up cameras pointed at the front door and lawn, and they even rented a nearby house to act as a command post. Agents in unmarked cars followed him whenever he left his house, and the FBI even used two small planes to follow his movements from the air. The plan was to have Oba arrested on September 17th, but that day he got into his car and headed for the interstate, just as the FBI was preparing for their interview with him. It was only an hour before the arrest was supposed to take place. The team debated on whether or not to arrest him on the spot or follow him on his trip. They figured he'd be back to his house soon, so the unmarked cars trailed him on the plane and watched him from above. But as time went on, the first plane started to run out of fuel and needed to land. Oba was running an odd series of errands across the state, and finally he stopped at a stereo store just as the thunderstorm rolled in. The weather was too bad for the second plane to take off. Oba left the store, but the heavy rain made it difficult for the agents to follow his car, and they ended up losing sight of him. The agents drove through the interstates looking for him, but they didn't have any luck. Days went by without any sign of the killer, and the team worried that he'd commit another murder. 
All they could do was wait and hope that he turned back up at the house. Finally, a week later, Oba called his house in Port Orange from a payphone near the Florida State line. It looked like he was going to make his way home, and the agents got ready to make their arrest, and the unmarked vehicle spotted Oba heading towards his house. The killer parked his car in the driveway and headed for the trunk. Just then, an agent came up to him and placed him under arrest for sexual battery. It was the day the team had been waiting for for years. On September 24, 1992, Oba Chandler was arrested for the Madeira Beach rape and taken to the Pinellas County Jail. Before Oba could be charged with the Rogers murders, though, the police needed a few more pieces of evidence before they could call a grand jury. One of Oba's daughters named Crystal actually told investigators about some pretty incriminating statements her father had made. In 1989, shortly after the murders, he randomly drove up to Cincinnati to visit her. Oba had told Crystal that he was on the run from police back in Florida as they were trying to arrest him in connection with a rape and the murders of some women. Crystal's husband, Rick, told detectives that Oba had told him something very incriminating. He told Rick that he had raped and murdered three women and thrown one of them off of his boat. That November, after the state's attorney talked to Crystal and Rick, he called a grand jury hearing, and the grand jury eventually voted to indict Oba Chandler on three counts of first-degree murder. After the trial date was set, the prosecution continued to collect evidence. Investigators had tried to get phone records from the Chandler household from the months of May and June of 1989. Originally, the telephone company told them that those records had been lost, but as the prosecution built their case, a state's attorney investigator tried to find those records again, and he was able to find those records and discovered some key phone calls. On the day of the Madeira Beach rape, May 15th, someone made a collect call to the Chandler house at 5.49 p.m., and in the hours after the Rogers murders, June 2nd, there were five collect calls to the house, three calls between 1 and 2 a.m., one call at 8.11 a.m., and one call at 9.52 a.m. The investigator was able to determine these calls were placed from on board a boat. And when he dug deeper, he discovered that the caller needed to radio a marine phone operator to connect the call to its destination. Whenever someone made a collect call via the marine operator, the operator filled out a marine phone toll ticket, and these tickets had the time and length of the call. They also sometimes included the caller's name. The investigator found these toll tickets and discovered that all the calls came from a boat named the Gypsy One. The caller listed on the May 15th toll ticket was Oba. The first four calls on June 2nd didn't list a caller, but the last call listed the name Obi. These toll tickets were proof that Oba was out on the water during those crimes. Before the trial started, the state's attorney's office subpoenaed Oba's wife and asked her about the Marine Collect calls. She answered pretty much every question with, I don't recall. Oba had probably been calling Deborah to make up excuses as to why he was out late. He did work on a contracting job at 7.30 a.m. that morning, so he probably went back out on the water after. He was making sure that there was no evidence of the murders out in the bay. Oba Chandler's trial began in late September of 1994. In their opening statements, the prosecution outlined the case against Oba. They said that he had lured the trio out to his boat, tied them up to concrete blocks, assaulted each of them and threw them into the water alive, one by one. In the defense's opening statements, Oba's attorney did admit that Oba met the Rogers women and gave them directions, but he argued that the state could not prove that Oba murdered them. In fact, they had the wrong guy altogether. The defense also agreed that Oba met the Canadian woman who accused him of rape, but he said that Oba was not on trial for rape, so he wasn't even going to discuss whether or not he committed the crime. The prosecution worked through their case quickly. They even called as many as 20 witnesses in one day. Some of these witnesses included handwriting experts, fingerprint analysts, and the marine phone operators. 
Next, Oba's daughter and her husband were called to the stand, and they told the jury about Oba's surprise trip and the incriminating statements he had made. Oba had actually made a lot more than just a few incriminating statements. The next witnesses were in jail with Oba after his arrest. Those three witnesses said that Oba bragged about sexually assaulting a woman from a different country on his boat. He told one of them that the only reason he didn't kill her was because she had a friend waiting at the dock. Oba told another inmate that if one of the Rogers women hadn't resisted, he wouldn't be in jail. One of his co-workers testified that on the day of the Rogers murders, Oba was in a hurry. He said he had a date with three women. The next day at the 7.30 a.m. contracting job, the co-worker knows Oba seemed tired, and he told him that was because he had spent all night out on his boat. The prosecution also called the Canadian woman to the stand. The defense tried to fight that, but she was sworn in and asked to recall the worst day of her life in front of a group of strangers. She kept her composure, though, as she bravely described how Oba lured her out onto his boat and assaulted her. After she finished testifying, the judge called a recess, and several members of the jury left the courtroom crying. The defense called a series of witnesses that testified they saw the Rogers women on June 1st. One witness claimed to see them at a local mall with a man and a child. Another saw Joe at the motel restaurant alone with a man, and another saw Christy in a black car near the boat ramp. The defense was trying to raise doubt in the prosecution's case, but during cross-examinations, the prosecution quickly showed the jury that these sightings were flukes. Then the defense called their next witness, Oba Chandler himself. Oba claimed that he did, in fact, meet the Rogers women. He said he was at a nearby gas station when Michelle Rogers asked for directions to the day's end. He wrote down the directions and left, claiming that he never saw them again. He denied taking the Rogers family out on his boat and murdering them. He also denied making any incriminating statements to the co-worker that the prosecution called. According to Oba, he was out fishing on the night of June 1st. He said it was easier to fish when the tides were changing, and that's why he stayed out so late. After he finished fishing, he claimed that he was on his way home when the boat's fuel hose burst. He was stuck on the water, so he called home three times to try and figure out a way back. Finally, in the morning, he was able to flag down two men in a boat who towed him back to shore. He called home from the boat before he started his drive back. That was pretty much the extent of the defense's questions for him, but after Oba got off the stand, one of the investigators raced out of the courtroom. He knew Oba was lying about the boat breaking down. The prosecutor grilled him during cross-examinations. With each question, Oba's face got redder, and he started getting flustered, as the story was full of holes and contradictions. Then the prosecution asked about the boat's fuel leak, and Oba tried to be vague about how the leak happened. He got angry when the prosecutor asked questions that showed his story wasn't adding up, and there was clearly no way the boat leak could have happened the way Oba described it. The jury was terrified of Oba Chandler. Throughout the trial, Oba tried to act bored or even confident, smiling while he was being accused of committing horrific crimes. He talked like a true salesman, and some of the jurors were sick to their stomachs, and others wanted to slap him. What a sick motherfucker. Seriously. After you commit all these horrific crimes, and you have the audacity to get up on trial and the worst laugh kind. about it and smile. Fuck you. I oh. mean, definitely fits the profile of a serial killer, oh, for yeah. sure. But the building of Oba's anger during cross-examinations was truly disturbing. One juror made eye contact with Oba during the trial and her skin crawled. It was as if she was looking at the devil himself. After closing arguments, it was time for the jury to deliberate. They took a quick poll to see where everyone stood on the verdict. And after only five minutes, they came to their decision. The jurors decided to spend some time calming their nerves and praying. They studied the photos of the victims, Joe, Michelle, and Christy, and they cried. 
An hour and a half after deliberations started, the jury returned to the courtroom to deliver their verdict. And on September 29, 1994, Oba Chandler was found guilty of the murders of Joe Christie and Michelle Rogers. On November 4, 1994, Oba was sentenced to death by electric chair. However, the state of Florida banned the electric chair as a means of execution in 2000. So Oba was then set to be executed by lethal injection. After the trial, many jurors continued to have nightmares about Oba. Some women who served on the jury started keeping a gun in their nightstand. Joe's mother created a family portrait after the murders, and the family posed together and left three spaces where the pictures of Joe, Michelle, and Christy were photoshopped in. The portrait hangs in her home next to a blackboard Michelle doodled on. Hal Rogers still lives on the family farm in Wilshire. Sometimes he sleeps in the blue Oldsmobile when he misses his family. Hal was in a deep depression for years, but he didn't go to any counseling. He'd rather talk to his friends. Once he went to a support group for people whose family members had been killed, other members seemed overwhelmed with the huge amount of loss he faced, his wife and his only two daughters, plus having to cut his mother and brother out of his life. He felt uncomfortable with the attention, and he didn't come back. Hal has made progress, though, as years have gone on. Before, his grief led to self-destructive behaviors and some suicide attempts, but now he is firm in wanting to stay alive. He takes Prozac, which really helps improve his depression. Hal eventually remarried a woman named Jolene, and she's a widow as well, and he's grateful that she understands his situation. Jolene has four kids of her own. Hal is happy that his life is at least halfway normal now. Hal still thinks of Joe, Michelle, and Christy every day. He keeps reminders of them around the house, like portraits and the girls' old toys. Sometimes, especially around birthdays and anniversaries, he still thinks that they're going to come back one day. But he still feels their presence in his home and in his heart, and he knows that his family is watching over him in heaven. Oba Chandler was executed by lethal injection on November 15, 2011. He never took any responsibility for his crimes. In his last statement, he wrote that the state of Florida was putting an innocent man to death. He didn't want to at first, but Hal ended up attending the execution with Michelle and Christie's cousin, Mandy. Before he was taken away in a hearse, Oba Chandler had a chance to repent or apologize or plead for mercy, but he didn't. Instead, he left only a handwritten note to be read by the Department of Corrections. His last statement is, you are killing a innocent man today, Oba Chandler. Chandler showed the same defiance at his trial 17 years ago. The horrific details of how Joan Rogers and her daughters Michelle and Christy were lured onto a sailboat, then tied up, assaulted, and one by one thrown into Tampa Bay to drown never seemed to bother Chandler. Even his attorney found him a hard person to like or understand. Maybe I failed Chandler, you know, maybe I failed him in that regard, but somebody had to try. Do you think he's guilty? I have no clue. Anti-death penalty protesters on hand Guilt or innocence wasn't the issue. We're against it. We feel it's wrong. Uh, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. But Opa Chandler committed more than one wrong, destroying the Rogers family and his own. Though she wasn't allowed to witness the execution, a woman claiming to be one of Chandler's eight children came to the prison to find some kind of closure for herself. What he did and who he was does not affect me and who I am today and who I'm going to be tomorrow. So do you believe he did this? Yes, I do. And there's no doubt in the mind of Hal Rogers, the Midwestern farmer whose wife and two daughters never returned from their Tampa vacation. Rogers witnessed the death of Opa Chandler, but let his niece do the talking today. And we are grateful that they were brought back home to us. Now is the time for peace. 
Just minutes after Oba Chandler was declared dead, he was put in a hearse and taken to the Alachua County Medical Examiner's Office. There will be an autopsy, even though we know how he died. We saw it. Everything has to be official. I actually didn't know that. Even after you're executed, you have to go have an autopsy. Yeah, well, I think just for legal yeah, the record keeping, they have to just confirm that that was, in uh, fact, how he died. So a few years after Oba was executed on February 25th, 2014, police actually announced that DNA matched Oba to the cold case rape and murder of Ivelisse Barrios Bagaries. He killed Ivelisse in Coral Springs, Florida on November 27th, 1990. Ivelisse was a 20-year-old woman who'd recently gotten married and she was working at a sporting goods store in Sunrise, Florida. Oba watched her for two days and then slashed her tires while she was at work. When Ivelisse came out to her car, Oba pretended to be a helpful stranger and abducted her. He bound, sexually assaulted, and strangled her, and then he dumped her body under a mailbox in a residential neighborhood. Ivelisse's husband came to her workplace after she didn't come home that night. He found her car with the slashed tires and reported her missing. Her body was discovered three hours later, but the case went cold for over two decades. Detectives took another look at the case and matched DNA found on her body to Oba thanks to advancements in DNA evidence technology. That's cr that's crazy. And it doesn't surprise me mm -hmm. that he is a serial killer and he there might even be more yep. victims out there. I mean, just the way he went about all of it is 100% serial killer profile. And thank God they got him when he did because my guess is he would have went on killing oh, 100%. and assaulting more women. He was going to do it until he got caught. Yep. Or until he died. Yeah, 100%. But the residents of Wilshire, Ohio, still keep the memories of the Rogers women alive in their hearts. And here's a, here's a clip of some of the citizens just talking about remembering the Rogers family. We drove by the church cemetery, and there are the Rogers graves right along the front, you know. And uh, it just gives you goosebumps. You think about it. And um, so it was, a, it was just a very sad time. And people, you know, people still talk about it. But at the end of the day, I'm just happy that there's closure to this case and the man clearly responsible for these heinous crimes uh, got the punishment that he deserved, in my opinion. And, you know, I've, I feel so horrible for Hal and just I can't even imagine what that must have been like to go through losing literally your entire family to a serial killer. And, you know, thinking that your, your loved ones are going to go off and enjoy this vacation of a lifetime and just have these great memories to come back home to and just to have it end the way that it did is uh, just beyond. I just can't even imagine what that must have been like. Yeah, the fact that it was their first time leaving Ohio. Yeah, the first time they leave Ohio and this happens. And yeah. You finally get to go on a family vacation and leave this tiny little, you know, not only is it your first time leaving Ohio, but you live in this teeny tiny little farming town. Yeah, yeah. This was such a big deal for them too. Yeah to be able to go to Florida for a week and hopefully have the time of their life. And they just, it seems like they just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when Oba was out mm -hmm. looking for his next victims. And it really does seem like them. once he figured out like, Oh, and they're from Ohio. Yeah. He was like, this even is better. A, the perfect crime here. Cause he can really gain their trust and try yeah. to make them feel like, Oh yeah, I'm just somebody, you know, back home. Yep. Yeah, it's it's really scary. I mean, just I mean, just predators in general, and just like terrifies me. Especially having a daughter, I'm just like, ah, uh, just the world is filled with 
these types of people out there and it's like there's it's just scary to think that you could come in contact with somebody who's like oba at any time yeah and i think nowadays it's obviously more difficult and people are just more aware of of the dangers of you know just taking up strangers invites for car rides or boat rides or or whatever and you have to be suspicious of everybody yeah i mean that's that's what i'm ultimately going to teach my kids is just like Mm -hmm. you don't know who these people are you don't know what their intentions are especially never go with a stranger alone yep yeah my mom and my my dad would always teach me like do not trust anyone even if someone comes to your door and is like i'm a police officer like your mom's hurt i need to come help you like yeah you don't go with anyone ever no matter what kind of shit they're trying to tell you so important yeah it's so important to to teach i feel like teach your children young and i mean the three of them they were all together so right. it was like i'm sure they never thought that their lives were in jeopardy but you just never you just never know who you're you're coming in contact with and sometimes like if you if you get told things from somebody that you that sounds like it's too good to be true oftentimes it is too good to be true i mean i know i've had personally like situations where i've been like approached by random people in parking lots and somebody starts trying to give me like this whole story i remember this one time it gave me just such weird vibes this guy like came up to me randomly and he's like oh he's like i'm a veteran i'm you know my family's like stranded on the side of the road i need you to give me a ride to to get back to them he was like at the gas station and and in my head the whole time i'm like the story sounds legit Mm -hmm. Like it's like I'm like, who am I to say that this guy isn't a veteran? Right. And he actually like pulled out his ID and like showed me that he he showed me his veterans or his military ID. Yeah. And, and so like in my head, I'm like, the story checks out, but I'm just like, something just doesn't feel right about this. And 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 I think I was like 18 maybe, so I was like pretty young. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, I don't know, I don't know what what like the purpose of this is. Because I was like, why can't you just take an Uber? Right. I was like, why can't you? Just, I was like, you know, can you just get a taxi or something? And I think I ended up just giving him like some money. I think I had like a hundred bucks or something. And I just was like, well, if it is true, then I feel bad because right. he's a veteran and his kid, he said his wife and kids are like stranded on the highway. But I'm like, you just never know. You though. could call the police. Like, there's a lot of other avenues to go rather than go this route, yeah. just like being sketched and approaching somebody. So Definitely. ever since then, I'm just like, don't trust anybody. Don't talk to any, like, don't go anywhere. Don't give people rides. You just never know. Like yeah. you don't know if they have a weapon. You don't know what their motives are. So I just was like, here, take some money and you know, get get a taxi or a cab. And, yeah, and that was right probably thing. the smart smart decision because you just never know. No, and sadly, like those types of incidents are many times how sex trafficking totally totally takes place. You know, or I could have been robbed or yeah. could have carjacked yeah, me. I mean, I mean, who knows? A lot of things or, could have been. Yeah. There's a lot of things. But for women especially, I'm just like, don't go anywhere alone. Don't go with anybody. Even if a woman comes up to you. Yeah. As a woman, if a woman comes, oh my gosh, I need help. Like, don't go with them. Yeah. Or I know like we've talked about this in past episodes, but I've been at Walmart super centers before and I've been nearby while a sketch looking woman's walking around approaching other women. Yeah asking them if they want to go be a part of her bible group yeah and i'm like that is just so weird like who is recruiting people for their bible study 
at the local Walmart, right? Like that just doesn't make any sense. But it's it's the way that they sort of gain your trust by whether it's military, you know, I'm a veteran or, you know, I'm just this innocent Bible study person, right. you know, come join me. But it's just like, I mean, you we we know at least and most of you out there now listening to the show that like Walmarts and especially Walmarts on major interstates are where a lot of sex trafficking happens and people are kidnapped and taken. So you have to just be so careful these days. It's just insane. Like yep. get get like a get one of those little birdie alarms like yeah. on your keys. You know, arm yourself with as much as you can <laughs> because right. you just never know who you're gonna come in contact with. It's just it's scary out there. But I hate to end this episode on that note, but there's really like no positive there's, way to there's end no this way episode. to end this it's one. It's just I mean, a tragic, heartbreaking story. It is. Or case. It is. And you know, ultimately, we want to remember Christy, Joe, and Michelle, and yeah. you know what beautiful people they were, and this beautiful family that that was the Rogers family. So yeah. we'll go ahead and end the episode there. But thank you for joining us for another episode of Mile Heart Podcast. Um, I don't know when I'll see you next. Um, ho- hopefully, going to be back on schedule by the end of August. But you know, it's my first first child, so you just never know what to expect. You never know how things are going to go. I'm super excited though to meet meet my daughter and start that next journey with her. So <laughs> wish me luck. <laughs> we'll we'll need it. You're gonna do great. Um, but yeah, I'm excited. Can't wait to meet her. But that wraps up today's episode. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you guys soon. Until then, keep taking mine. Um, I lie. Oh, you wanted me to finish? <laughs> You're good. See you guys later. <laughs>